in the Sermon on the Mount. So I ask that you turn to chapter 6, Matthew 6. This evening we'll be looking at verses, that's on page 811 in your pew Bible, 811. This evening we'll be looking at verses 16 through 18. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let's give close attention to it. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, Father, we lift this time up to you and ask that you would guide us in our thinking. Mold us and shape us into our Lord. Magnify him before our sight. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, either God or senior pastor Caleb or both demonstrated their sense of humor choosing the pastor with the biggest stomach to preach on fasting. (laughs) The very first verse talks about disfigured faces as a means of attracting attention to the fact that one is fasting. But when it comes to me, the truth is, if you see my face disfigured, it's because I'm really hungry and I'm looking for my next meal. (laughs) This is a perfect example of the benefit of expository preaching. You can't jump on a hobby horse and preach what you want and skip over things. You can't avoid topics that are not favorable to you. You have to preach, thus says the Lord, And like everyone else, stand under the refining fire of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Thus far in this chapter, Jesus has been severely criticizing the religious leaders of his day for their hypocrisy as it related to their giving and their prayers. They claim to know the scriptures well, and indeed, the evidence supports that notion. They were very good at communicating what the scriptures said. But unfortunately, it wasn't always for the purpose of being molded by what they were reading. It was instead for the purpose of molding what they were reading into a tool to accomplish their end. The scriptures, for example, contain a plethora of verses which communicate the fact that our efforts in all things should be motivated by our primary relationship as Christians. Listen to Ephesians 6, for example. It says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Again, listen to Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What's communicated in those verses that I just read is consistently communicated, not just there, but throughout the scriptures, both old and new. 
Our primary relationship as covenant people is with God, our maker and sustainer, and our motive for engaging in the things we do should reflect that fact. And as we've seen in this chapter thus far, that was not the case with the Pharisees. Their primary relationship was not with God, and thus their primary motive was also amiss. They gave to be seen, and they prayed to be heard, both with the goal of being held in high esteem by men. And so as we come to this passage, nothing has changed. Jesus is still excoriating them, but now it's related to the issue of fasting. Biblically, that's the discipline of giving up food for a purpose or a specific amount of time. It's a discipline that we find being used throughout the Bible, but one that was only mandated, listen to this, one that was only mandated during one event, the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16.29, we find these words, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. Afflict yourselves is the Hebrew expression which includes fasting. And you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Again, Leviticus 16.29 is the only place in the scriptures where fasting is put forth as a requirement. Nevertheless, both the Old and New Testament mention it in favorable terms and provide multiple instances of fasting by believers, much more so in the Old Testament than the New. Now, those who are more inclined not to fast or who are sensitive to, to it being used in a legalistic sense will often point to Jesus' conversation with John the Baptist's disciples in chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. There it was brought to uh, John the Baptist to light that Jesus' disciples did not fast. They did not fast. So upon inquiry, Jesus did not respond by telling them that his disciples were wrong, but by letting them know through the imagery of a bridegroom and his wedding guests that while the bridegroom was around, it was not time to mourn, which is one of the reasons scripture lays out for fasting, a time of mourning. But lest we think like some try to assert through using that text that Jesus, the fulfillment of all types and shadows which pointed to them was getting rid of fasting, doing so in chapter 9, we should note that we find these same words in that same passage. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus anticipated his death, resurrection, and ascension, and noted that his disciples would then re-engage the practice of fasting for the reasons put forth in Scripture. And again, notice it's in response either reactively or proactively to their relationship with him, nothing else. So now when we look at our text, under the light of what we've heard so far, and read the words, and when you pray, we shouldn't come away thinking fasting is compulsory or a spiritual duty to be strictly and regularly observed. It is rather a means, a spiritual discipline to engage in on a voluntary basis and it is between you and God. This makes the leaders in this 
text look even worse because what they were doing wasn't even something that was required of them. Not only were they taking the things that were required and misusing them, but they were doing the same with the things that weren't even required. Their hypocrisy was off the charts. And so in this text, just like the ones before it, ungiving and unpraying, we're instructed in three ways, what not to do, what to do, and what to expect. Let's look at those three things under three headings. The wrong motive equal the wrong face. The right face equal the right motive. And third, the just compensation associated with the two motives. So first, the wrong motive equal the wrong face. In verse 16, Jesus says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Now remember the original use of the word hypocrite referred to actors who wore a mask that portrayed the character they were playing. It was not the person who was on display, but the character. So according to accounts of the culture of that day, these men covered themselves in ashes, wore raggedy clothes, and even put on makeup which made them look pale and miserable. And they walked around with that old, woe is me spirit, woe is me, I'm, I'm fasting. And so what they wanted people to look at them, oh man, look how spiritual, look how, oh my goodness, he's really into the Lord. Concerning these Pharisees, it was said that they primarily fasted two times a week on Monday and on Thursdays. And get this, they claimed that they fasted on those days because they commemorated the two days that Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. But what they didn't mention was that on those days, those were also the two major Jewish market days, the days when the cities and towns were crowded with farmers, merchants, and shoppers. Now, based on what we know about them and about us. Which one of these things you thought they, that you think they were really motivated by? Our text, we don't have to guess, our text tells us, it says that their fasting may be seen by others. And the more, the merrier. So of course they choose those days. The more heaped up accolades, praises, and attention, the more they achieve their objective garnering the praise of men. In their prayers, garnering the praise of men. In their giving, garnering the praise of men. And now in their fasting, garnering the praise of men. Now I don't know many people today who made such a dramatic spectacle of themselves through fasting. But I'm pretty sure there are other forms of ascetic, that is denying yourself, harming, hurting yourself, there are many different forms of ascetic behaviors that we engage in and, and take some measure of pleasure in broadcasting to others. I don't watch television. I haven't watched it in years. I don't listen to certain types of music. I don't eat such and such. Listen, in of themselves, you might very well be right in abstaining from those things, but the point here is if you're doing so as a means of engaging in some sort of merit-based practice, that was another thing that the Pharisees were fasting for. They were actually fasting through a system of merit to gain merit, to commend themselves before God. So if we're doing anything and it's to gain merit 
in, in God's economy and to impress others, then we are off base. Or we're into garnering the praise and adulations of others, then you're not where you need to be. And so to you, to me, to anyone prone to this, Jesus says, don't do it. Don't do it. Instead, verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting, your asceticism, whatever form that is, may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. That brings me to my second point. The right face equal the right motive. The same foundational truth that undergirds the practice of giving and prayer apply here. That is all three entail a personal engagement with God. It's me and God. It's you and God. As I said last week, prayer can be corporate, but even then it's still a personal engagement between every single person and his Lord. He is our shepherd, but in prayer he is mine. He is our provider, but in giving I give because of and to him, to whoever or whatever the cause may be. It's still to him and for him. And so there is to be no outward show to any other. A multitude of purposes, yes, but all in the context of my personal relationship with my Lord and Savior. It is in that context that Hannah fasted and asked God for a child and promised that she would return that child to him if he provided her with, a heart, with her heart's desire. It was in that context that God gave to her Samuel, a mighty man of God. Hannah's outward expression might have seen showy to Eli. It's in the book of Samuel. But her words clearly demonstrated that through her outward expression seemed one way. It was the right face driven by the right motive. So you can make your face look ugly and everything else, but God knows your heart. In Exodus 34, 28, Moses fasted before the Lord. Not because he was trying to get God to do something, but because he was so occupied with God that he used the time he would normally spend eating to commune with him and God. And it was in that context and on the basis of what was he was given to in Jesus. It was on that basis rather that Jesus then could come forward. God, that is God given to Moses, that Jesus could come forward in John 4, speaking to the Samaritan woman, saying, you worship what you do not know. The oracles of God were not given to you. We worship what we know. Why? Because they were given to us through Moses. For salvation is from the Jews. So through the very act of wanting to commune with God, for the very purpose, for that single purpose, God used him. Now, this sermon is not a tutorial on fasting. And again, like I said last week, the passage is not primarily about praying, about giving, about fasting. It's about our hearts engaging in those practicing, our hearts engaging in the things that God has given us as a means to glorify him. Okay? So it's not primarily a tutorial on fasting. But what I want you to see here or understand is that when it's done with the right motive as shown time and time again in Scripture, it results in one growing in both his 
or her understanding and zeal for the Lord. And the Lord, not by any manipulation on the part of man. He is not a cosmic vending machine. But through the counsel of his own will, provincially brings about, providentially brings about his ends. We just see it more clearly when that is where our focus is placed. Our focus is on our reconciled relationship with God, fostering it, growing in grace through active obedience and repentance, seeking to achieve his purposes and not our own. It is when we're operating in that space that we deny ourselves, acknowledge him in all our ways, and look for him to direct our path. Jesus says this is the track we should be on, not the first. This is the one that will be seen by the one and only person who really counts when it comes to these things, the one who will respond accordingly. That brings us to our final heading, the just compensation associated with the two motives. You know, it's amazing how prone to extremes we are. On one side of the spectrum, we have these prosperity teachers and and Christians who proclaim that all Christians should be wealthy, healthy, and wise. Many of the folks who engage in the appropriation of excess claim that it is to God's glory, but then unsurprisingly, you find them reveling in the attention that's heaped on them by others. Then there's the crowd who believe that to deny yourself means just that. So even though they have the ability to do otherwise, they still resort to extremes that are not normative in Scripture. The folks in this group often take pride in the fact that they are poor or seem to be poor, don't have much in the way of food, clothes, and shelter, but hey, look at me, God provides. In both cases, these folks of whom I'm referring to would outwardly tell you that what they're doing is for the Lord. But upon further examination, they betray the fact that they're beset with a level of pride that needs to be unmasked, dirty or clean, wealthy or poor, just like the Pharisees in our text. They have the same goal in mind, the attention, adulation, and praise of men. Here Jesus tells us that these folks have received their reward. Think about this. They were actually looking for earthly gains that have no heavenly worth. Are you looking for earthly gains that have no heavenly worth, brothers and sisters? Those gains can't and won't commend them to God. And it can't be taken with them when they leave. You know, I think about, as I was writing, I thought about it, I said, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. has a street named after him in every major city in the United States of America. He's in, he even has a federal holiday named after him. But I bet if he could speak to you right now, he would say, it doesn't matter. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does it matter if all the accolades are heaped on me? If the entire world bows down at my feet, what does it matter if I don't see Christ? face to face in the here and after. If I'm not molded and shaped into his image, 
and I continue to be left in my own, and therefore I am as lost as a zebra in the North Park Mall. You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> what does it matter? And so the opposite tr- uh, holds true for those whose motives are Christ-centered. According to the book of Hebrews, I love it, their eyes are in a city that has foundation whose designer and builder is God. Not because they have a primary desire to live there, but because they have a primary desire to know and live with the builder, to honor him for all that he's done and who he is. That person, our text, that person, the word of God tells us, will be rewarded both here and in times to come. Brothers and sisters, Jesus committed an entire section of his sermon, verse 1 to verse 18, to the issue of hypocrisy. You know what that tells me? It tells me we need to be paying close attention to our own hypocrisy meters, making sure we check them on a regular basis, and doing so while we're in a room with a mirror in the front of us and a mirror in the back of us. And if there was ever a reason why humility is so important, humbling ourselves before God. You know, if I could just mention for a moment, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1 through 12, God deals with the issue of fasting, of the Israelite people fasting, and he confronts them because they were fasting, and they were looking all pious, just like the Pharisees, And God comes to them and says, you know what? And I'm just paraphrasing. You're fasting. You're doing all this fasting. And am I really concerned about the ashes and the ripping of your clothes and all this other stuff? Am I really concerned about that? Or am I concerned about the fact that while you're fasting and taking a break, you still have the people that's working for you being taken advantage of, oppressed, downcast, Am I concerned about what you are doing, the externals that you're engaged in? Or am I concerned with a heart that says, love me, I love you, Lord, with all my heart, mind, and soul? And then after that, am I concerned about what you're doing externally? Or am I really concerned about the fact that you are supposed to love your neighbor? And your neighbor is that person that's working for you. Your neighbor is that person that's less than you. Your neighbor is that person who does not have the ability to do the things you are able to do? Why are you oppressing them? You know, Jesus in the New Testament, when you looked at him and his conversation with the Pharisees, same thing. He says, you are sitting here, you're trying to load upon these people all these requirements, all these things that's based in your tradition, but you yourself and you're heaping things upon them that you yourself cannot bear up under. And because of that, because of where their heart was, again, their practices showed or manifested or demonstrated where their heart was. And so it was with fasting, the same thing. They hypocritically fasted in the chapter we're looking at. They hypocritically fasted in Isaiah 58, and God dealt with them at the heart level. The spirit of the prophet Jeremiah, the spirit of God, Speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, let us know 
that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And the only antidote we have is the indwelling presence of our comforter and the word he uses to put us in remembrance of what our Lord has stated, what he wants and what he's doing. It is only when we're looking in and through him that we can shed the cancer of hypocrisy. I want you to hear that again. I don't care how, more, how mature any one of us claims to be. If we take our eyes off Christ, if we take our eyes off the fact that we are in him and it is in him that we move and have our being, the minute you do that, you're like Peter. Remember Peter? Peter said, hey, bid me to come walk to you, Lord. And Jesus said, come. And Peter said, yep, I'm on my way. And he took his eyes off the Lord. And so it is. If you take your eyes off the Lord in fasting, in giving, in praying, in denying yourself in any fashion, you will then be self-focused. And if you're self-focused, you will then act in ways that gratify yourself and not the God that's called us to glorify him. That is what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus called them, called the disciples that were listening to him not to be like that, called us not to be like that. Engage in the practices, but engage in them with the right heart. What is required of us? to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before our God. That is what he was looking for from them in Isaiah 58, and that's what he's looking for from us in all the things that we engage in. Engage from the heart because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. The sermon that we heard this morning was awesome completely Christ-centered and pointing out the fact that Adam and Eve acted one way and they didn't have the prerogative to. Christ acted a completely different way and he had the prerogative to hold on to the riches of heaven because he is God. And again, it is when we walk in Christ that we will operate in that same mindset and so that when we fast, it will be for the right reasons, with the right motive before our God and not one another or for the benefit of others seeing us for our own glorification. So the entire pericope, 1 through 18, prayers, our giving, and fasting, the first two are central and commanded by God. The third is not required, not commanded, is compulsory, but it is something Jesus said when you fast, but when you fast, twice. So there's something that is there for us to deny ourselves for the purpose of focusing on our Lord, drawing near to him. And when we engage in that practice, we do so for the reasons that you've heard. And we always need to be looking in the mirror. This is with anything. We always need to be looking in the mirror to make sure that our good works is not to be shown before men, but we're doing it because God's spirit is operating mightily in and through us for his glory. 
Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us. It is always our desire that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart will be acceptable in your sight. It is our, it is our heart's desire that we would not walk and act and move as actors pretending to know you, pretending to love you, but that you would be merciful and shed abroad in our hearts a reality, a sincerity of heart so that we could be calling upon you, looking to you, moving and having our being in you and doing so sincerely in accordance with the truth of your word. We are fallen we are sinners. We are unable to do any of these things unless you provide the grace for us to do so. And so we are falling at your feet even now, asking that you would enable us by the power of your spirit to do all things to your glory, to do all things with an eye on pleasing you, to do all things within the context of our relationship with you. Would you bless the efforts of our heart and our hands? We know it is you operating in and through us for your glory. Would you give us the ability to walk in obedience to the promptings of your spirit? May our devotions towards you be from the heart and not outward from our mouth. Father, we ask these things in humility, knowing again that it is absolutely impossible outside of our Lord and Savior, our prophet, priest, and king, outside of the spirit that you have given us. So we lay upon you now these prayers and resting on your promises that you will do what you've promised in terms of molding us, shaping us, and keeping us until that day. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.